will be on page 1060. If you have your red, the red uh, pew Bible, you'll need to open that up because we're going to be reading from the Word of God today. And hopefully I'm going to be explaining from the Word of God and applying it to our lives. So you'll need that red pew Bible that's right in front of you, 1060, page 1060. So we should be seeing pages turning right now. Let me read it for us, and and, and please read with me silently, or you can read out loud as well if you want, I guess. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. That's Jesus. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, referring to his executioners, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he has done nothing wrong. Then he turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun had stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus then called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, that's the Roman soldier, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. The week prior to his crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion, he encountered the cross-section of Roman and Jewish politics and religion. On the one hand, you have the Romans, and specifically the Roman governor of Jerusalem and Judea, Pontius Pilate. We learned about him last week. As we learned, Roman rule was brutal. They didn't care so much about justice as much as they did keeping power. Now, the Romans did allow the Jewish people to kind of have some authority over their local affairs, and and they they even allowed the Jewish people to uh, uh, practice their own religion. But the Romans gave no room at all for potential revolutionaries. Insurrectionists were not tolerated at all. And then on the other hand, you have the Jewish leaders that Jesus encounters. 
These, these Jewish leaders hated Jesus because he challenged their hypocrisy and their obsession with man-made rule-keeping. Jesus also disrupted their most foundational belief. They worship only one God, Yahweh. But Jesus came and he accepted worship from other people. He even identified as Yahweh in the flesh. But the, the straw that broke the cam, the final straw that broke on the camel's back for the Jewish leaders was in the final week before his crucifixion. Jesus goes into Jerusalem for the Passover, Passover festival and he comes into the temple. This temple is sacred space where God is symbolically present with his people. It's a place for worship. It's a place for sacrifice. It's a place for prayer. And Jesus enters into the temple and he sees swindling, cheating, brash consumerism. Looks like a casino rather than a place of worship. And he basically clears out the place, overthrows the money changers. The Jewish leaders have just had enough with this Messiah figure. You can, you can imagine them saying, what is this kind of messianic complex he has? So they, they try, they plot to kill him. They trap him in the middle of the night while he's praying. They conduct an illegal trial in the middle of the night with trumped up charges and false witnesses. On Thursday night, before his, his crucifixion the next evening, they convict him of religious crimes. But the next morning, the Jewish, the Jewish leaders bring him over to Pilate and convict him of slightly adjusted charges of insurrection, of rebellion. He opposes payment of taxes, they said. He stirs up all the people. He even claims to be the king, Pilate. Of course, nothing Jesus ever did or spoke about was anything like an insurrectionist. He taught his followers to love their enemies, Luke 6.27. He taught them that you should be act kindly towards those who persecute you. If someone takes your coat, give them your shirt also, Luke 6.29. He even affirmed paying taxes to Caesar. So these were all baseless charges. If you were here last week, you know what happened. Pilate thinks he's innocent. Herod thinks he's innocent. But the Jewish crowds dig their heels in. They even go as far to say this to Pilate. If you let Jesus go, you are no friend of Caesar. Pilate, you're going to be an insurrectionist if you let him go. Pilate hands him over to be crucified. Something interesting that Luke does when he tells this crucifixion narrative is he tells it... Sorry, where is the... He tells us the story of Jesus' crucifixion through the eyes of all the observers around him. It's one of the reasons we picked this eyewitness theme. He shows us the death of Jesus by looking at how all these different people respond to him, how the Jewish leaders respond to him, how the Jewish crowds do, how Pilate does, how Roman soldiers, how these women who knew Jesus responded to him, how these two criminals who were who were suffering next to him, how they responded to him. So we, we read the story through about ten different lenses and angles, both positive 
and negative. Perhaps the most significant responses we find are from none other than those two criminals who were dying on the crosses next to him. Let's read in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. Who were these men? Were they just your kind of common thieves? The term used to describe the two criminals in the other Gospels is the one used for insurrectionist. These people, the word, they probably aligned with the group of Jewish people called the Zealots. These Zealots hated Roman rule, and they would even use violence to instigate harm against Roman rule, Roman soldiers, and even Roman sympathizers. So these two criminals executed alongside Jesus were likely violent revolutionaries. Something akin to having Guy Fawkes on your left and right. The death sentence has been given, and so the soldiers take these three criminals out, to a, a, out of the city and, and onto a hill that protrudes out of the ground almost like a skull, and that's how it gets its name. There, alongside a couple of local terrorists, Jesus is crucified. The Romans were masters of execution. But crucifixion was not simply a means of execution. You could have done that a lot more simply, couldn't you? Crucifixion was intended to shame and humiliate its victims. The body was stripped naked, secured to a wooden beam, and then hoisted up into the air. The Romans would place their victims on an elevated place so that all the people passing by could see. This is what happens to you when you oppose Rome. It's a brutal scene. It's humiliating. The death, the, the death was not quick. The victim would suffer slowly as they lost blood and they would be exposed to the sun for hours or even days it would take. The usual cause of death was suffocation because the victim would have to lift himself up every time he wanted to breathe because his his chest hung low on the cross. Three men are being tortured here. Two of them guilty and the other one as innocent as any innocent man has ever been. It's the height of injustice. And yet, in verse 34, read with me, Jesus looks down on his executioners and he prays for them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Here we have Jesus forgiving the very people who are executing him, as they are gleefully playing a game, rolling the dice to see who will get Jesus' coat. The men have become so calloused that they can playfully gamble away the very belongings of the people who are being executed right in front of them. They don't realize that the person right before their eyes watching this is the creator, sustainer of every breath breath they take as they are actually doing it. Christians in the room this afternoon, I want to 
quickly pause and say, when we say the function of the church is to represent Jesus to the world, this is the kind of radical behavior we are given from Jesus. Forgiveness, compassion directed at those who have hurt us deeply. Brothers and sisters, this may be the hardest thing in the world to do on an emotional level. But there is almost nothing more essential to being, living as a Christian, than showing this kind of radical, mystifying forgiveness. Listen, following Jesus, pursuing justice, and loving others, when it benefits you, is not, that's not what you're simply called to. The Christian life is loving and forgiving when the hurt runs deepest. That's the kind of supernatural behavior that the world should be regularly seeing from the church. Anyways, we continue. In the remaining verses, we see a number of different responses to Jesus on the cross. But they basically boil down to two responses. We see two responses. In the first, the first three people, or the first three groups, who meet Jesus on the cross, they mock him. They think he's a fraud. They, they think he's a lunatic. The second group of people recognize him as the true Messiah. They see his innocence, and therefore, they worship him. So, first response. Some mock him as a fraud and lunatic in verses 35 to 39. First, we see the Jewish leaders and the Jewish crowds do it. Verse 35. The people stood watching, and the rulers, that's the Jewish rulers, even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. You might have expected the Jewish leaders who trumped up these false charges against Jesus, maybe to avoid, maybe their conscience would kick in and they would avoid the crucifixion. After all, you get the sense that they knew he was innocent. They just hated him so much, they wanted him to meet a sudden death. They're there. They're watching and they're sneering at him. As he hangs naked on the cross. You saved others, they shout. This they can't deny. Jesus was famous for healing the sick and the blind, for miraculously feeding his followers who had come to see him in the desert and had no food. Even his enemies knew that he had really saved others. That was a, a truth they could not deny, but they use it as a taunt. Save yourself if, if you are really God's Messiah, the chosen one. Oh, this sounds eerily like Satan's temptation at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Do you, do you know that story? Satan finds Jesus out in the desert for 40 days and says, If you are really the Son of God, then prove it by doing this or that or this or that. He's not trying to get proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Satan knows it. Satan's theologically conservative. He knows exactly what the Bible says. He wants to derail Jesus from his mission of saving sinners. It's almost like you can hear Satan's voice coming through. That's what Luke's doing. Luke is trying to subtly show you that Satan's voice is coming through all these muckers. 
if you are really the Messiah. Abandon your mission and to save others and save yourself, Jesus. Of course, there's a great irony here. In that Jesus was must be willing must willingly die in order to save others. In saving himself, he cannot save others. He had all the power to save himself in that moment. But he forsook his rights and his power at that moment to save sinners. In verses 36 through 38, we see the taunt of the Roman soldiers. Verse 36, the soldiers also came up to him and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. So the Roman soldiers now repeat the same taunt. The charge is written above his head. This is the king of the Jews. And you can imagine what these Roman soldiers, right, were thinking. How pathetic. Our king, our Caesar, sits on a throne in the greatest city on earth, Rome. He is the most powerful man on the earth. No one would dare challenge his authority. But these Jewish people, they're weak. They're pathetic. And the only thing weaker and more pathetic than them is this self-proclaimed Messiah who is hanging here in abject shame and humiliation. As Jesus had prayed, these soldiers had no idea what they were doing. They thought Caesar was powerful. They thought he was a mighty king. When in fact the authority Caesar had was given to him from God. They had no idea that the weak broken man on the cross was also the supreme judge, their supreme judge for all eternity. Charles Wesley wrote a famous hymn, if you, if you perhaps if you grew up in the church, called Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. And the second verse, there's a modern adaptation of that song, and the second verse captures the horror of what's going on here. Those who mocked and scorned his name, these men, Pierced and nailed him to the tree. Deeply wail and sorrow grieve when they, the true Messiah, see. Every eye will see the Lord, dressed in dreadful majesty. Every knee shall bow before the judge of all eternity. They mocked the one who would judge them for all eternity. Oh, how horrifying the prayer is. Jesus, forgive them, for they they don't know what they are doing. The climax of those who would mock Jesus while he is crucified on the cross is none other than the guilty criminal. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This criminal thinks Jesus is a fraud also. But what's astonishing is that this criminal is so angry with Jesus that he finds the willpower to even shout insults at him in the midst of a grueling suffocation from the
and crucifixion. Right, I had said earlier that crucifixion killed most of its victims by suffocation. You could only breathe by pushing up with your legs and lifting your chest vertically for a few moments so that you could gasp for air. When 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 your legs gave out, you could no longer breathe. So this criminal, with some of his final precious breaths left on earth, hoisted himself up in order to hurl insults at the man dying next to him, but not just any man, the Messiah. What a tragedy. His dying breaths could have been used to beg for mercy. They could have been used to humble himself, to worship. But he didn't. He hung there, guilty, a criminal, and yet he stood, a criminal stood in judgment of Christ. And sadly, many do the same today. We read the scriptures. Most of us, even secular people, even non-Christians, we hear about the incredible things that Jesus did, the beautiful things he taught, and not only taught, but actually lived out. And yet, we still stand in judgment of Jesus. Certainly, he couldn't have been who he said he was. Lunatics like that. Lunatics ask people to worship them. He couldn't be a king. Certainly a God-man. That's ridiculous. Savior of mankind? Rose from the dead? Miracle worker? And so we. Men and women of the modern age think we stand in judgment of Jesus, just like that criminal. Friends, Jesus will always stand in judgment of you and me. Always. He will either stand in judgment of you, or he has become the judgment for you. Some have said to me, if I could have just seen Jesus seen his miraculous power, then I would believe. Friends, all these people saw Jesus face to face. They didn't even doubt his miraculous works. He saved others. And they still judged him as a fraud. Paul would say in Romans 1, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. But there is another way to respond to Jesus. We find that in the second criminal who was crucified with Jesus. Secondly, some worship him as the innocent Lord and Savior. Verse 40 through 43, read with me. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus doesn't try to defend himself, but the other criminal does rebuke the arrogant criminal. Do you not fear fear God? We're hours away from meeting our maker. 
And you can see the gears working in this guy's mind. This man is innocent. I know that. And if he said, if he is who he says he is, then your dying breaths are blaspheming the very one who will be your judge. Don't you fear God? I want you to look at his response. His response shows what submission to King Jesus looks like. First, he, he admits his guilt. We are getting what we deserve. Secondly, he acknowledges that Jesus is holy and righteous. He has done nothing wrong. Third, he entrusts his life to Jesus. His only hope at this point is the life to come. He's dying. So he asks Jesus to remember him. It's a plea for mercy. He wasn't standing on his impressive spiritual resume, was he? He was a criminal. He couldn't point to a long service, life of service to Jesus. All he had was a laundry list of sins, a broken heart over those sins, and a hope that Jesus was the answer to his eternal salvation. That's all he had. Brothers and sisters, if you are not yet a Christian, you, you won't become one by vaguely identifying, with, or vaguely identifying with Christians or a church. You won't become one by getting involved in a humanitarian organization. Great thing. But you won't become a, you won't become a true Christian like that. You won't become one by being a good parent, neighbor, minding your own business. All good things, but that's not what makes you a Christian. No, the only way to come to Jesus is the way this criminal did. You bring a broken heart over your sin and rebellion towards God. You turn from it. And then you place your hope, your trust, that Jesus is who he says he is. And that he is the answer to your separation from God. That's how you become a Christian. The Roman soldier, after Jesus' death, the centurion also responds positively. He says in verse 47, Surely this was a righteous man. Friends, do you want to know who Jesus was and is? If you're, very, if you're unfamiliar with him, reflect on him at the cross. Pick up the original accounts of his life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Pick those books up. They're, they're, it's the Bible. They're also historical books. And read about his life, the things he did, what he taught. But you cannot possibly understand the significance of his life and teaching if you do not see it through what he did on that cross. So, so read it. Let it sink in. Reflect it. And then you have two choices. Is that man a lunatic? Or is he the Lord? There's still one response I want you to see here. It happens here on the cross, and it's not explicitly talked about, explicitly in the text, but it's found throughout the New Testament. It's the response of God the Father. What was the Father doing at this point? 
God the Father turns his back on him, on Jesus, as the bearer of our sins. Read 44 through 46 with me. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun had stopped shining, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. You might be thinking, okay, where do we see God the Father show up here? We see it in the whole land miraculously turning dark for three hours. Throughout the Old Testament, when darkness covers the earth, we, we know that, that God, it's a, it's a device Old Testament authors use to show that God is doing something of apocalyptic, of end time, of earth-shattering significance. He is showing his divine displeasure at this injustice. The tur- curtain of the temple is torn in two, straight down the middle. The temple curtain, the place where God's presence was found, is now split. In the account of, by Matthew and Mark, we hear these horrifying words from the mouth of Jesus. My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? People who read and study the Bible have have always called this the cry of dereliction. It's a horrifying cry. He's quoting Psalm 22. Where an innocent sufferer says the same question to Jesus, to God. Why have you forsaken me? Turn quickly to Psalm 22. Keep your hand where it is. Turn quickly to Psalm 22. It's on page 554. And read with me this psalm that was written thousands of years before this event. We're going to read a a bit of a chunk here. 554. The Bible gives us one great interconnected story, and we see that the author of the psalm foreshadow the horrifying events in Jesus' life. 554, verse 1 and on. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and they were saved. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm. Not a man. Scorned by everyone. Despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me, brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. 
Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted without, within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People share and they gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. But in that moment, God would not save him. From eternity, God the Father and the Son enjoyed perfect unity and love. In that moment, Jesus took on himself the sins of humanity. And the magnificently holy God turned his back for the first time on his son. The darkness showed his divine displeasure not only over the execution, but also in the son who had identified with sin. So that we could receive God's good pleasure. Jesus became the sacrificial lamb, our substitute. He saved others by becoming sin and taking our punishment so that we could be reconciled to God. That's how the cross saves. But look at verse 46. Jesus cries out again with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my Spirit. Even in death and rejection, Jesus is entrusting his life, even in death, into the hands of the Father. He believes the Father will vindicate him as the truly innocent Messiah, the Son of God, and he does so by raising him up from the dead three days later. Jesus shows us how to trust God, the Father, during the most horrific suffering. And God rescues him and raises him, not then, but three days later. And Jesus lives and he reigns from heaven. As we close, I I want to make one application that's been stirring in my heart. Obviously, there's an obvious application. Trust in Jesus, right? It's so, so plain. But I want to make a specific application because it intersects with some of our most potent emotional questions about God. And it's this. You, you've probably heard it. If there is really a God who is creator, all-powerful, totally good, why do we experience suffering? You know, there's the ordinary day-to-day suffering that we experience. Loneliness, 
depression, an unhappy marriage, a job that's not satisfying. Then there's the more extreme cases of suffering that we don't all experience intimately, but we certainly know exist, and that's children dying of cancer, mass genocide, whole families dying of starvation because they lack food and water that they need. And we are just, humans are just wired to ask this question, why? Of course, the question only makes sense if there's a God in the beginning, right? There's no God, there's no why, there's no meaning to it. Just is. It's dumb luck. How can you allow this to happen? I've met people who have said to me, I just can't believe in a God who would allow extreme suffering to exist. What they really mean, of course, is that they can't come up, they personally can't come up with a satisfactory reason that they think God could have for allowing suffering. That's what they mean. Certainly God couldn't have a reason for this. Because I can't think of one. But just think about that for a second. The God described in the Bible is all-knowing. He's experienced every past generation and every future generation. He knows all outcomes and all potential outcomes. Is it possible that God has a, a reason for allowing suffering to exist that you just haven't thought of? As a person who knows about this much, not even, of what's going on in human history. Modern people are often very arrogant. Ancient people would never have thought that was as much a problem. But at the end of the day, our difficulty with suffering is not primarily logical or philosophical. And quite frankly, the Bible doesn't give us a logical, philosophical answer to the problem of suffering and evil. What it does give us, I believe, is more powerful. I know some of the reasons from the Bible why evil and suffering exists, but I certainly don't know why God allows some children to die of cancer and others to thrive. I don't have that answer. No one in here does. What I do know is that the greatest amount of suffering that has ever been known on this planet occurred when Jesus, the Creator, Son of God, in the flesh, was crucified on the cross. And not only that, the Son who was perfectly holy and just, the Son who enjoyed perfect fellowship with his Father, received the Father's wrath for the first time in eternity, was considered the worst of sinners. This is the most densely concentrated suffering that has or will ever be experienced on earth. And hear this. Although Judas is guilty and responsible for betraying Jesus, although the Jewish leaders are guilty and responsible for unjustly framing him, although Pilate is guilty and responsible for condemning him without evidence, Although the soldiers are guilty for carrying it out and mocking him, 
God the Father, with his Son, planned the entire thing. It was their plan of redemption. And if they had not, there would only be wrath for us right now. If God the Father had a reason to make his son endure maximal suffering, the most densely concentrated suffering, should we not trust that his good and powerful hand also has a reason, mysterious may it be, for all other lesser suffering? Not less horrifying. We should still say, why God? But then we can respond. Your son did this. More, more densely concentrated suffering. And you had a reason. There is no meaningless suffering. And if you are a Christian, suffering cannot take your meaning in life away. The story of Elie Wiesel is, helps us here. You, you may know him. He's a famous uh, Jewish-Hungarian author and professor, just passed away last year. Elie Wiesel, as a Jewish boy, was taken to Auschwitz. And there he was separated from his mother and sister, and he would never, ever see them again. The horrific things he saw rocked his view of God, shattered his view of God. He felt he had no answers for what was happening. But the most excruciating thing he saw, most horrifying experience, was when the guards took and tortured a small, it's just hard to even talk about, small young boy. They tortured him and then they hung him. They made the prisoners watch. And it took him about 30 minutes to die. And as the prisoners were forced to watch, Ellie heard someone say behind him, Where is God? Where is he? I mean, that's undoing it. You can imagine how mad you'd be. And in Ellie's book, he says, I heard a voice within me answer. There he is. He's on the gallows. Hanging there. Weasel, not a Christian, didn't realize how true his words were. How God answers the problem of suffering. God answers, sorry, the problem of suffering by suffering himself. He suffers with us. And more importantly, he suffers for us. Two criminals suffer along with Jesus on the cross. But Jesus was only suffering for one of them. One criminal, the one who humbly acknowledged his guilt and flung his hope on Jesus, worshipped him. Friends, come, come to the end of yourself today. Jesus endured death so that you could enjoy God's presence. By trusting him, you can make his death your death. His righteousness, your righteousness. His resurrection, 
your future resurrection. In him, you will find meaning in life. Meaning that suffering and death can never take away. Who else offers that? Meaning that suffering and death can't take from you. Let's pray. Father, when we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See from your head, your hands, your feet, sorrow and love flow mingled together down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet? Was there ever a crown of thorns so rich? Love so amazing, so divine, demands our souls, our lives, our all. Father, I pray that we would entrust our whole lives to you this evening. We love you. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus who suffered and died in our place and now represents us before the Father, righteous and living.